the web's the greatest application delivery platform we have on earth but the bar for it is here devote like a couple of years to learning five different programming languages five or six different frameworks oh yeah and then all of devops and then maybe you can play this game Couchbase is a modern, multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase developer portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources, including the Couchbase developer community forum. Ready to get started developing on Couchbase? Visit couchbase.com slash new to Couchbase. Hello, everybody. Good morning, and welcome to the Stack Overflow. Oh, I did it again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Stack Overflow Podcast, no matter what time I or part know. of the universe you're in. It could be afternoon. It could be any time. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm joined by Sarah Chips, our Director of Community. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Ben. How's it going? How's the farm? Uh, the farm How is the good. Chickens? There was about a flock of like 30 turkeys on my backfield this morning. So I got a, I got Whoa. pretty excited. I think the season starts May 1st. Do they fight the chickens or they like hang out with the chickens? It was the cousins? first time in my life I've seen the actual like classic American scene of the male turkey like puffs himself up, you know, and spreads his tail feathers. And oh, like, yeah. it's like, I'm here. It's spring. So it was pretty exciting. So we have a great guest today from a company called Anvil, which is based in the UK. And I discovered them as I was trying to figure out how to build my dog park app. And I typed in something like easiest web app or like no code, low code web app and Anvil popped up. And I think basically what it is, and I'm going to get this wrong probably, is like a platform for creating web apps with just Python. But, you know, there was a couple of ones you recommended, right? Like Node Red. It was kind of in the in the same SEO space as that. Yeah, so great. There's a lot of great Node Code solutions out there now. And Python's a good language as any to do it with. So our guest today is the CEO and co-founder, Mered Luff. Did I get the name close to right? Yeah, pretty close. If you're not reading the show notes, it's spelled M-E-R-E-D-Y-D-D. So like Ben stood zero chance there and he did fantastically. <laughs> Welcome. Say your say your name for us so people at home know how it should be said. My name is pronounced Meredif, and I'm very pleased to be here. Meredith, welcome. So yeah, tell us what's the inspiration here? Why Python? Why for this sort of you know use case? And 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 why did were you the person to build it? I guess it goes back to how I started programming. It was back in the days of DOS, and I discovered this amazing program called QBasic, and you could write a few lines of code, and you could make programs that would draw text on your screen, or play noises, or take input from the joystick, you know, all those things that, you know, a kid of that age is is really excited about. And the barrier to entry was so small, because you could pick it up, and you could, once you learned a little bit of how to code, you then had something that you could use and show your friends. And I grew up a little bit. I graduated onto Visual Basic and Delphi and these things that were rather similar, but for Windows, you could you know drag and drop build your what your window was going to look like and then write a little bit of code to run when you clicked a button or entered a text field. And then you had it. You had an application that worked like everything else on your system. And then the web revolution happened and suddenly we lost it. And now there's like, there's a sign 
at the entry entrance to the park that says you must be this tall to ride this ride, only this tall is you must know HTML and CSS and JavaScript and Python and SQL and React and Redux and Webpack and Bootstrap and I've run out of fingers, but it keeps going. <laughs> and this is completely unfair to, uh, yes, sure, I'm selfish. I think of kids like me just starting out, but anybody who hasn't plowed their career into being a full stack web developer, you know, the world is full of data scientists who still need to be able to present the stuff that they're doing as an interactive tool for someone else to use. Manufacturing engineers who need to be able to produce, you know, a, a dashboard for what their machinery is doing. Back-end engineers who need to be able to throw together an admin panel. Embedded engineers. There's a whole bunch of people who should be able to build things for the web because the web's the greatest application delivery platform we have on earth. But the bar for it is here. Devote like a couple of years to learning five different programming languages, five or six different frameworks. Oh yeah, and then all of DevOps. And then maybe you can play this game. And we thought this was ridiculous. So we built something that anybody who could speak a little bit of Python could use instead. Sarah, coming from a background where you've learned databases first and then a lot of web development and now work at a company where you know we have to think about things at scale, do you run into people who you feel have come up against similar frustrations? I mean, I know for me, there was a little bit of this, um, certainly like, where do I start? And when I do start on something, yeah, how do I avoid sort of that branching past where I, you know, to, to, to get somewhere, I keep, you know, encountering another door uh, that I don't know how to open? Yeah, I think, I think it's a big one. I think I hit that frustration a lot with Ruby on Rails. Whenever I need to get a Rails app running on my machine, I always give two to three days to do it because there's always <laughs> a ton of dependencies mm. Right. There's like so many dependencies going on and you don't know what version of Rails you need and you don't even know what version of dependencies you have already installed or what you need and all those things. And so it takes so much time. Do you see the same thing in the Python world? I guess I guess you do. I guess that's what you're saying. I mean, yeah, hu yeah hugely. I mean, that's wonderful because like I was just talking about the plight of someone who hasn't built web apps before. This is like as someone who's clearly done this before and you still need to block out a couple of days to get it set up. That's I mean, it, that's hilarious in a you know terrible way. <laughs> um, but yes, absolutely. You see this an awful lot uh, in the Python world. Like even... Even people like you who've been around the block a couple of times with building a web application, like just getting from zero to, okay, now I'm writing my application logic is, is quite a heavy lift. That makes sense. Do you see a lot of folks finding Anvil because they're looking for that one, two, three, set up and go? What is the use case that you see the most? So I think it might help to explain what Anvil actually is. So if you're building an application with Anvil, you'll start at an online editor. So you go to anvil.works, sign up, log in, you get a web IDE. And you start out with a drag and drop designer so you can build what your user interface on your web page is going to look like. And then if you like double click one of the buttons, you're then editing the Python code that runs in your web browser when that button gets clicked. And you can also add server-side code, and instead of having to set up like HTTP endpoints and mash all your stuff into 
JSON on the way, you can just say, actually, define some functions in your server-side code and then call those functions from the browser. And then you it's all serverless, so you can hit a button, choose a URL, and deploy it there on the web. There's also like a hosted database for storing your data, so you don't have to set one of those up either. So really, the the, the people we see the most of, I mean, we see people in all walks of life. It, it's really quite fun talking to them. Like, I... I never knew about telecoms fraud prevention, but of course there are telecoms engineers where that's their sphere of expertise. They write a lot of Python driving telecom switches, but they wanted to create an interface for customers to be able to manage their own number allocations. And that's an example of something where someone with that skill set can just get up and go and build a web application, whereas previously they would have had to collaborate with someone else or hire an agency or a whole bunch of other stuff that would have been an awful lot more work. So a lot of people in that case, like a lot of people who aren't full-stack developers but nonetheless write code, actually like the Venn diagram over the overlap there is really quite substantial. I want to ask the sort of uh, maybe aesthetic writerly question, and maybe there is no good answer, but like it's interesting to think about people, as you say, who have to learn Python because it applies to their you know job and then also want to use that same skill set, that same language to then build stuff for the web when it's useful for them. Can you look at a website and say, oh, yeah, the person who wrote, who created this, you know, definitely a Python person or like the kinds of stuff that people build with Amble, you say, you know, this makes perfect sense because they're using Python. It lacks certain functionality or flavor or, you know, design that you might get if you decided to go a different route, you know, HTML, CSS, all that stuff. I think that's, I mean, we should dispel any myths that Python is an underpowered language for this kind of work for ordinary, if you're using classic full stack web development. Like, when was the last time you used Instagram? Um, you know, yesterday. 30 seconds ago, I don't know. Yeah. Right. That's a Python <laughs> backend. That okay. is, so the genius of Python and why we chose Python as the language for Anvil is that it is used for everything from teaching a bunch of nine-year-olds how to code for the first time. And, you know, for that, things like that, it's very popular with teaching curriculums. It's very popular mm-hmm. with the Raspberry Pi community. And it's everything from there to DeepMind built, beat the human mind at the game of Go for the first time ever. Like that right. happened in Python. Instagram, that happened in Python. So I don't think there there is a way you can look at a project and say, yes, Definitely that's Python because it has Python's limitations. But what Mm -hmm. you can do is you can often look at a person or an industry, a person's background or what they're doing, and go, yes, you are clearly bumping up against the limits of the tools that you have in your hands. That makes sense. And so, you know, you were you were sort of sharing with us some of the the motivations for doing this. And I guess, you know, it sounded like, yeah, some of those some of those were personal motivations, but you know, some of it I guess is is also just to do with uh, as you said, you know, the sort of rise of Python, it's it's growing popularity and the fact that more and more people, you know, might have this skill set. You shared with me that you were working on an auto completer. Just back out a little bit. What does an auto completer do? And when you sit down to build one yourself, what does it take? Oh, so this is, I mean, this is the joy of like of a deep computer science nerd like myself. To be clear, like this is, <laughs> I, I, I did my PhD in building usable programming environments. So like I, I am deep into this stuff and I don't pretend this is of universal interest. Nevertheless, I find it fascinating. So if you're using a good programming environment, as you're typing your code, 
your programming environment will be suggesting code completions. So, you know, you start to type a variable name and it'll offer you, oh, here, hey, here are, you know, four variables that start with those characters in your code and you can hit tab and complete one. Likewise, you know, you type an object and then you type dot and it'll show you the, you know, show you a drop down with, oh, what functions, what methods can you call on it? What attributes does it have? And any serious, you know, a development environment worth its salt has one of these. So uh, if you, you know, if you use, for example, the uh, the JetBrains family, so uh, PyCharm or IntelliJ or WebStorm, you know, they have they have engineers dedicated to building systems that can look over your code and work out, you know, what variables are accessible to you right then. And you know, if you use VS Code, similarly, you've got like code servers that crawl over your Python or TypeScript or JavaScript or whatever code base and offer you completions for where your cursor is, what are the things you might validly type next in the language's grammar. And this is all very great, and we could have taken one of those off-the-shelf solutions, but for two problems. One is that, as I previously mentioned, Anvil is a coding environment that works on the web, which means that like when you hit the tab key when you're typing, there's just not enough time to go back to the server and scan your code, work out the completions and go back to the browser, right? You, if you think about how fast you hit, hit, hit your keys on your keyboard, 200 milliseconds just isn't enough. And the other thing, more importantly, is that because Anvil actually gives you the full stack, the code completion can do things that you can't do in, in classic uh, web development. So in classic web development, you're writing... It's almost like you're writing three or four separate programs. You're writing queries on your SQL database that will spit out some kind of tabular data. And then you'll be writing something on your server side, whether it's Ruby or Python, or whether you're using frameworks like Rails or Django or just doing it raw, that will then process that into objects. And then you have HTTP endpoints that will spit out JSON and what form that JSON is is kind of defined by your server-side code, and then the JavaScript, you're receiving those objects off the wire from your HTTP endpoints, and you'll be putting those into templating engines and so on. And because the data has been through so many transformative steps, it's actually very difficult to get good code completion. Because if you're typing something in your JavaScript front-end, and you're like, okay, this object dot, well, what attributes does that object have? We kind of don't know because the answer to that is bundled up with like the code you wrote in SQL and the code you wrote on the server side and how your HTTP endpoints work out and your JavaScript code. <laughs> and the typical code completion engine can only see your JavaScript code. But what Anvil can do is because it's all one language, because going from the client to the server was just calling a function, we can actually get it. And we have, because we have a built-in database, we can actually get a lot better than that. So we built our own auto-completion engine that understands everything about the full stack of your app so that you can be like in the UI editor, like doing the drag and drop and going, okay, what text goes in here? Well, it is in fact the current user object and the auto-completer knows that that object is there and it knows what columns are in that database row because it knows about your whole stack. And the process of building it was really fun and I can absolutely explain that to, to, <laughs> to you if you'd like. But I wanted to start out with like what code completion is and like how it's kind of failed us in the modern full stack world and why we built our own because we reckon we could bring some of the magic back. So what I'm hearing from you is you're setting up the autocomplete to work on the server side and then are you caching it on the front end using local storage so you can do your autocomplete? Did I hear correctly that you're not using any JavaScript? Oh, no, no, we, we are in, so if you are programming in Anvil, 
you, if you're using Anvil, then you don't have to use any JavaScript. You write your client-side code in the browser in Python, and um, you write your server-side code in Python. But the, or, the Anvil autocompleter, that's part of the Anvil editor, and so we wrote that. We actually wrote that in JavaScript. Got but it. because it's part we of caught your, you. yeah, We caught no, you. Oh, you're, no, 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 this is fine. We've like, shot, no, we, that's it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it wasn't Python all the way down. No, no, we, like we write. We, of course, we re- build this tooling in JavaScript because, like, when we set out to build Anvil, this stuff didn't exist. And believe you me, we hit the same frustrations with full stack web development as everybody else. And there is this little dent, you know, four sh- forehead shaped dent in my desk next to my keyboard that's marked. I am dealing with this pain, so other people don't have to. So, to answer <laughs> your question about the autocompleter. Anvil's autocompleter, because it's built into the editor you're using to edit both your client-side code and your server-side code and configure your database, it can parse the Python you're writing on the server-side and the Python you're writing on the client, and then walk over it and go, well, okay, what type does this function return? Ah, this function returns like a database row from that type. So in the client, when that function gets called, I know we've got a database row here. And so when someone types, you know, types that variable and types dot, we can offer them all the columns that are in that database table. So it's done in JavaScript. We actually parse the Python in JavaScript using the same technology that we use to run the client-side Python in the web browser. And then we have a JavaScript code that walks over it and does, I mean, symbolic execution is the technical term, but basically looks at each line of code and goes, well, you know, I know this is type X. So if I call method Y on it, then I get type Z as my my return value and walks through all that. And then when it encounters your cursor, it knows what options you have because it knows what variables are, you know, in the function you're writing in. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So that's really interesting. When you say client-side Python, that's not something that you hear that often. Is that something? <laughs> no, it's uh, not. Yeah, right. Is there a world in Python? So I, I think of what I see in the Node community. Of There's just a world of different view engines you could use to be writing uh, client-side JavaScript on the back end. Is that kind of how you're setting things up in Python? Is there a whole world of view engines in Python? or There, there is actually quite a world of them. Um, I don't know if you have space in the show notes for a link, but a colleague of mine actually gave a talk at PyCon UK, like walking through the design space of some of the engines for executing Python in the web browser. And you're right, there's a whole ecosystem, there's a ton of ways to do this. But we've we have chosen one of them. Uh, we have chosen a Python to JavaScript compiler called Sculpt. It's an open source project. I'm one of the maintainers. Anyone who fancies contributing to Sculpt should totally check us out on GitHub, S-K-U-L-P-T. Uh, and it actually originally started as an educational project, but it's been, it's a really good way of like embedding a Python runtime into something else. So it's kind of not opinionated about what APIs it offers your Python code. It just offers an emulation of the Python language in JavaScript. And then whoever's integrating it then says, okay, and I want to make these APIs available to this Python code. And that was great for us because there are some solutions like Brython, for example, which is the idea there is you can write Python in your script tags instead of JavaScript, which is like, I mean, that's a trip. It's fun. The technology is awesome. But it therefore has some quite predetermined ideas about, oh, if you're using Brython, you must be writing HTML. You must be writing these sorts of APIs to interact with uh, with the browser. And we actually wanted to start from a clean sheet. We reckon that a lot of the problem with web development is 
the necessity to interact between all these different programming languages, all these different representations of your data, and all these different frameworks. So we went, okay, we're going to build a unified abstraction. We're going to choose which APIs we expose. We are going to expose like a almost a classic UI toolkit like you would have seen back in the Visual Basic or Delphi days. And we implement that in JavaScript. And you know, we do the bridge to the browsers, the browsers DOM and CSS for so and so on for making that happen. But in Python, you just interact with a set of Python classes that we've constructed to build your UI. So, sorry, just to back out for a second there, Sculpt is, can, can you just explain a little bit to a lame person like me what that's about and, and who the community working on that is? Okay, so Sculpt is a Python to JavaScript compiler. So at the very basic level, it's a JavaScript library that you can feed a string a string of Python code, you can feed it into that library, and it mm -hmm. will spit out JavaScript gotcha. that does the same, does what that Python code would have done. And it's it's not very it's not the world's most efficient JavaScript, but what it is is JavaScript that accurately main accurately represents the semantics of that Python code. So it will behave really exactly as that Python code would have done if you'd gotcha, run it gotcha. on a local Python interpreter. And so we use that to turn the Python code you write for your user interface into JavaScript code that the browser then executes when you run your web app. You, you had one other idea which you suggested, and so I'll take you up on it, which is writing good developer docs. You know, here at Stack Overflow, we have this uh, product called Stack Overflow for Teams, which is basically like a private instance of Stack Overflow inside of your company. And, you know, lots of developers are already used to that Q&A format and find it's a great way to sort of do documentation on the fly. Somebody has a question, you post it, then people answer, they debate, the best answer gets upvoted, and boom, now you've, you've got some reasonable documentation. But you did a talk on this and wrote about it on the Anvil blog. So what's your approach to doc? You know, the thing that every developer loves to hate, how do you do documentation right at, at Anvil? So the thing about developer docs, if you are maintaining a developer-facing product, so if you are building a platform, if you are building an API that you want developers to use, if you're building like a library you're going to stick on you know, on NPM or uh, on PyPI or any of these equivalents, your documentation isn't just your docs. Your docs is your user interface. If you're building a developer product, your docs are your UI. And they're also your marketing. And they define what your product actually is. You know, they're, they're your UI because the first thing that a developer does when picking up your thing, it's going to be to click on the docs, whether it's a tutorial or a reference or a list of what uh, or an API list of API methods. That's where they go first. That's how they can tell what your doc is. Like that tells you where your product's sweet spot is. They're also content marketing, and Stack Stack Overflow knows this better than anybody else. But the world is full of people googling how do I do what your product does, and. Yeah. That is, if they land on any form of your docs, you've just succeeded as content marketing, whether it's a tutorial for how to do X or the Stack Exchange answer for how do I do this particular thing. Well, this is exciting to me because my job is director of content marketing, but now I can just take credit anytime somebody Googles something and ends up on Stack Overflow. Did you hear that, Sarah? I get all the credit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no kidding, yeah. right? Because you, you, you must know that the answers on Stack Overflow are the best content marketing you have. Because right. they are the things that people are looking for. No, no, it's true. I mean, sometimes we used to call that like user-generated content. You know, really, it's the it's sort of the beating heart is the community and the interaction there. Yeah. 
But we started just sharing great questions and answers through the podcast and the newsletter and social media. And, and people love that, you know, just like, did you know, you know, and, and it could be even from, you know, our physics stack exchange kind of question of the day is, is a powerful thing that the community builds for us. Oh, no doubt. I guess I was just, I was riffing on what you were saying about if you have an internal uh, stack exchange, is that right. the stack overflow for teams, you call it? Like those are your docs and those are an external stack overflow is content marketing for your developer product, having answers out there. And it's, they're not just answer shaped, of course, because like documentation can come in a bunch of different forms. There's a guy called uh, Daniele Procida who's created a, a framework he calls the Grand Unified Documentation Theory and given some great talks about this. And he basically divides it into tutorials, which are, okay, you want to learn this thing, let me guide you through building a program with this developer tool. There's how-to guides is you want to do this specific thing. Here is exactly how to do this specific thing. And I think that's mostly where a lot of Stack Overflow answers sit. And then there's like explanations, which are, you know, those discursive posts that explain how everything works under the hood. And then there's your reference documentation, which is, okay, this is the dry but 100% utterly complete description of how everything works. And actually, we, we divide those because sometimes you have like API docs, like what methods does this class have? And sometimes you have reference documentation, like explaining, you know, this is how React's uh, rendering process works. That's that's not particularly tied to a to a particular function, it, but it is reference because it's explaining something in exhaustive detail. Yeah, I was just going to say I, I was talking with someone from Doctor Lib, this this French sort of e health company, and their 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 Teams customer. And one of the things that they were saying makes a lot of sense, which was the most popular questions and answers, and the one that that people you know inevitably find useful is what do I do when I'm setting up my development environment, right? Like when I'm just sort of onboarding to the company. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's, it's kind of this entryway. And so those are the most popular questions because that, you know, they're, you know, always hiring, not that they're the, you know, necessarily the questions that are going to, I mean, they'll make the more com the company more productive, not that they're like essential to the work day in, day out, but everybody's going to have that question is kind of the door to get in. I, I think I, I agree with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, so this is where, and I'm, uh, I, I'm afraid I'm going to go all kind of part of a nutritious breakfast on you because Although like that how-to and that Q&A stuff is incredibly valuable, and if you don't have it, you'll end up with your users hurting badly, Like it's not the only thing you need. You, know, you mm. can't say, oh, Stack Overflow answers about our framework are the only thing anybody will ever need. No, you, you, you need an actual tutorial as well, and you, you, you'll need your API docs. You'll need your Java doc or Doxygen or, uh, or equivalent. And so this is something that, like, how our, our documentation, I mean, operation, which is like, it's a very big part of what we build because we build developer tools and that those are our UI. Mm. Our documentation is, we're very conscious about, okay, here I am writing a tutorial, here I am writing reference, here I am writing explanation, here I am writing, well, auto-generating API docs because API docs should be auto-generated. And here is, we have a Q&A se uh, section. Now we, we use our forum for this. But like that kind of scratches the how-to itch. And so I suppose that like the biggest thing I would say about building developer docs is to like think about the whole developer journey. They will get to a point where the thing they most want to do is uh, Google stuff and hit your Stack Overflow internal or external instance. But you've got to think about the rest of that journey as well. Think about the tutorials. Think about their onboarding docs. Think about the reference. Think about the API docs. And you need it all. And if, especially if you're building 
a product that's going to be used externally. So, you know, the number of startups who have API products and they are like they are dying, they are parched in the desert for user attention and love from their users and they put that marginal piece of effort into another piece of content marketing when they don't have their documentation journey locked down. You know, I, I know it's it's like telling people to floss. Everyone knows you should do it and it's hard <laughs> and it's difficult. But like, I suppose for us, it's very easy because, because we know it's our UI. We know it is customer facing. It right. gets a kind of priority boost within a developer focused organization that it might not get inside other companies. No, no, I think you make a good point. I mean, one thing uh, I've learned in talking to people about documentation endlessly because to sort of like understand what it is and whether or not Teams is a better solution is the frustration of being asked to write documentation, not knowing exactly who's going to read it, when, how much they need, is this too much or not enough? And then if you write it, not always getting that feedback, you know, of, oh, somebody read it, maybe they found the answer, but they didn't thank you or they didn't say, you know, like that it just sort of goes oh, into yeah. a void and you don't get the positive feedback. Whereas I guess if you make it customer facing, that's interesting because you might get comments or see people, you know, go from there to try out the tool or something like that. That's an interesting way of positioning it in order to sort of not just get more value out of it, but be able to like have that feedback loop of seeing people actually getting something out of the docs that you wrote. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and if you're, if you're not certain about it, all the bug reports on your documentation will come out as questions. You know, everything that your documentation doesn't cover, this is this is the saving grace of having a Q&A environment, which is anything that is not covered by your existing documentation will turn up as a question there. And once it's answered, that, that like that's a patch on your documentation. And so it's interesting. I mean, we haven't considered it. I'm, I'm not sure I would recommend just completely setting out from a clean sheet and going, okay, we will discover all of our documentation via question and answer. But if you don't have it, you're going to be suffering because you're not going to dis- you're not going to discover the problems people have, and that if that's your product, then you're not going to be discovering the things that are stopping people from buying from you, and right, right. you know that never ends well. All right, it is that time of the episode. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, somebody who answered a question with a score of negative three, and now it's all the way up to a score of 20 or more. How to add hours and minutes to a daytime variable in C. So thank you to RJ Regalado on that one. And uh, Meredith, I'll I'll give a shout out to the UK's new 50-pound note celebrating Alan Turing, uh, apparently full of lots of geeky Easter eggs. So I guess if you're into computer science and in the UK, go pick up a 50-pound note. There's some cryptography inside of that piece of fiat currency. Ugh. Who uses paper money anymore, right, Sarah? Ugh. Ugh. I could maybe there's an NFT version of this 50-pound note I could get for 500 pounds. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah, for like six thousand yeah, dollars. Or just like dip it in bleach first, leave it for 72 hours. Might be safe to touch then. All right. Well, yeah. Moretta, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if people want to uh, find you online, check out some of your work or writing, where should they look? And then also if they, if they want to play around with Anvil, what's the best way to get started? So I am at Meredith, M-E-R-E-D-Y-D-D on uh, Twitter. Uh, you can check us out at anvil.works, A-N-V-I-L.works, W-R-K-S. And it's free to sign up and use and publish applications forever. Uh, you can check other stuff I have written about on the blog, anvil.works slash blog, or you can follow us on Twitter at anvil underscore works. We post stuff there as well. I'm Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. I'm working on a long-suffering dog park web app. Uh, it's not finished yet, but but Anvil really 
pointed me in the right direction, which is glitch. Awesome. And uh, yeah, uh, if you want to, no, I'm just kidding. It was just that, you know, learning any code was too much for me. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with Anvil. And uh, yeah, you can always email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. We'd love to hear suggestions and questions. Uh, I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me at sarahjoe.eth. 